Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. You may be thinking, well, I thought this was a sermon series on the gospel according to the Psalms. Well, we're going to be looking again at a quotation of this psalm, Psalm 16, that we had read, that is found in Acts chapter 2. So we'll be there this morning. And a couple of weeks ago, we did begin this sermon series, The Gospel According to the Psalms. And really what we've been doing, seeking to do, is to see how the Psalms specifically reference the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to look at the Psalms of the Old Testament that were written a thousand years before Christ ever came, and to see how they relate to Jesus. And so we began in Psalm 40 by looking at Jesus' incarnation and how clearly Psalm chapter 40 speaks of the coming of the Messiah. You remember how the writer of of the book of Hebrews used Psalm 40 to even be the words of Jesus himself. That he goes again and he prefaces his quotation in Hebrews chapter 10 by saying, When Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes some of Psalm 40. And then he goes on to say at the end, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. These are the words of Jesus. A powerful psalm displaying a thousand years before he ever came that Jesus would come and that he would be the sacrifice But then we saw a couple weeks ago, last week, in Psalm 22, Jesus' death, the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beginning Psalm chapter 22. But then this morning, we come to the next major peak of the gospel. So if we've had the incarnation, we've had his death, what would be next? None other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, we look at Acts chapter 2 this morning. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 28. But as we begin, let me ask you, have you ever seen somebody come back from the dead? I'm not talking about resuscitation. A bunch of you, specifically some of the nurses here, have, have probably seen a resuscitation. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about resurrection. Have you ever seen somebody come back from the dead? Like a person who has been dead for a few days, and then all of a sudden their heart starts pumping, and their brain starts firing, and their lungs start filling up with air again. No one's raising their hand. So I'm I'm guessing none of you have seen this kind of resurrection happen. So if that's true, then why would you believe that resurrection can happen? You've never seen a resurrection, and the only ones that you've probably ever heard about are ones found in the Bible. So on what basis do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Especially if the way you think is you're hanging your eternal hat on this thing. You're hanging your eternal hat on the fact that Jesus came out of the grave. On what basis do you put that though? Some of you may be here today and you think that Jesus' resurrection is of really no consequence to you. That it really doesn't ultimately matter whether Jesus got up out of the grave or not. It's really irrelevant to your life right now. But then there are other people who would say, no, my eternal hat is being hung on the fact that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, actually stepped out of that tomb. And so for the Christian, the resurrection is not some tertiary doctrine on the side of Christianity somewhere. 
Like, you can take or leave that. The resurrection is the central piece of Christianity. No resurrection, and you've got nothing. No resurrection, and you're on your way to hell. The Apostle Paul famously acknowledges this in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your death is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul is clear, isn't he? That if there's no resurrection, then what we're doing right now in this preaching thing, that is vain. Our faith, it's in vain. We're even misrepresenting God. We're still in our sins. And those who have died have no hope in eternity without Christ. And we, in this life right now, we're to be pitied if the resurrection is not true. So Paul is acknowledging all this, isn't he? That the whole resurrection is the hinge. it's It's the hinge that everything hangs. You don't have the resurrection and it all falls apart for those who confess the gospel of Christ. But Paul doesn't stay there. If you know 1 Corinthians 15, you know that Paul goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you affirm that this morning? And we know this now because of both internal and external evidence. That there is clear external evidence with eyewitnesses and all kinds of historians affirming the fact that Jesus did arise out of the grave. But there is also clear internal evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And it's some of that internal evidence that I want you to see this morning within the pages of Scripture. Acts chapter 2 should be well known to most of you. This is an amazing chapter where God, the Holy Spirit empowers the Apostle Peter, his preaching of the gospel, and many people are converted to Jesus. And within this preaching, he quotes some of Psalm 16 to attest to the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwelt in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness, me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. And so we find ourselves in the similar position that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. David spoke these words in Psalm 16 a thousand years before Jesus was on earth, yet his words, they seem so Christ-centered, don't they? They're so centered on Jesus. Emphasizing again that the Old Testament centers on Jesus. The point of your Old Testament is Jesus. And we saw this clearly a couple of weeks ago in the book of Luke, where Jesus is interacting with his disciples after his resurrection. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? He goes on to say, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so all that Jesus had to do in the gospel, that he came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, that was all testified within the Old Testament. That's what he says there in Luke, doesn't he? He says the scripture has to be fulfilled. It is written in the Old Testament. All of this has to happen. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. And he says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? And so this morning, I just want to draw your attention to four points within this quotation that Peter uses that are tied to the mission of Christ and his resurrection. And here they are. They're on the back of your bulletin if you would like to follow along this morning. Christ's mission was first infallible. It was hopeful, it was incorruptible, and it was joyful. Look again with me at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. So you notice first that Christ's mission was infallible. It was infallible, meaning that it could not fail. Maybe you can think back to projects in your life, things that you had done, and you thought for sure this is not going to fail. You know, you tied that thing down, this is going to hold, this not will hold, but then it ends up failing. Or relationships in your life that you thought this relationship's not going to fail, and then it ends up failing. Or churches are not supposed to fail, but this local church ends up failing here or there. You may think of something like the Titanic, right? The Titanic was not supposed to be sinkable, but it did. And so with everything around us in our experience in life being so fallible, being so quick to corrode and go away, how can we be sure that Christ's mission itself was sure, that it was infallible, that it could not fail? Friend, I believe our passage indicates it well this morning for us, that we can be sure about the infallibility of Christ's mission because of the God that backed the mission. None of the work that Jesus did in in the gospel was accidental. Nothing that Jesus did was willy-nilly or just out of thin air. It's not as though God was in heaven thinking a couple hundred thousand years ago, you know, or a couple hundred thousand, two thousand years ago, that, you know, things are getting pretty bad on earth. I should probably step in. I should probably handle some of this. You know, hey, Jesus, you want to go down? It It wasn't like that at all. Everything was determined. Everything was planned. And we know that because it was written in the Old Testament concerning Christ and His plan to come and to save us. 
And when you look at the context of Acts chapter 2, this passage here, you see it even more clearly in verse 23, don't you? Where Peter says that all of this happened according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Nothing could thwart the plan of God. When God makes a plan in His eternal decree, in eternity past, when He made that plan, it was all as good as done. So this is the plan of God. God plans for it to happen. Nothing's going to stop it. Do you understand the mission of Jesus in His death and resurrection to be absolutely infallible? Could not fail. Could not fail because God planned it. Peter says very simply in verse 24 that God loosed the pangs of death. Like loosening up a, a rope or a strap that had something tied down. He just, he just loosed it. That word pangs is, is not a word we often use, do we? We, we? Typically, if we use the word pangs, we think about birth pangs. Right? We think about what Kelsey just went through. Um, but God loosed those. He loosed the pangs of death off of His Son. Death couldn't hold down the Savior. Because if death could hold down the Savior, that means that you could hold down God and perish that thought, right? So you and I couldn't keep Him in the grave. The crowd couldn't keep Him in the grave that was chanting crucify Him. The Jewish leaders couldn't keep Him in the grave. The devil couldn't keep Him in the grave. All the demons of hell couldn't keep Him in the grave. Pontius Pilate and his little seal on the tomb couldn't keep him in the grave and the roman guards that were all surrounding that tomb they couldn't keep him in the grave right because up from the grave he arose right with a mighty triumph for his foes death cannot keep his prey he tore the bars away his mission was absolutely infallible nobody could hold back the plan of god could not be stopped and david's words from this psalm 16 that peter's preaching when they're cast in the light of jesus They make this infallibility clear in verse 25. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And so it's kind of different language because if you're picturing Jesus saying these words, that the Lord is at Jesus' right hand, He's talking about His work that He did on this life. And when He was on this earth and he He was living in perfection and in His death and His resurrection... The Lord was at his side. But when he ascended, he would be at the right hand of the Father. But second, Christ's mission was hopeful. Look at verse 26. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Christ's mission was hopeful. At Easter time, when we're looking at Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Black Saturday and so forth. When, when you think of Christ and Gethsemane, it doesn't look like there's much hope there, right? Jesus is praying. His disciples are being pathetic and sleeping off to the side. And the blood is coming down His face. And It doesn't look like there's much hope. When you see Jesus before the religious rulers and you imagine what that scene would have looked like in that mock trial. And they're trying Jesus and Trying him for blasphemy doesn't look like there's much hope there. Especially when you can see his, 
his, his friend, his disciple Peter off to the side who is denying him three times to a couple little girls and then to this crowd. And then Jesus' eyes meet him and you're thinking, how is there hope in this thing? You see him before Pontius Pilate who doesn't have the wherewithal to stick up for Jesus. Pontius Pilate's own wife says, don't mess with this Jesus situation. I've had a dream about this. Pilate turns him over to the Jews. It doesn't seem like there's any hope there. And then you see Christ on Golgotha hanging on the tree. He's dying. He's been beaten. He's been battered. The crown of thorns. And it doesn't look like there's much hope there. But Jesus could have a heart of gladness and a tongue of rejoicing and say with the psalmist that my flesh will dwell in hope. Why? Because of the verse before. Because of the infallibility of the mission. If you notice, the first word of verse 26 is the word therefore. And so you look back to see what it's there for, right? So because of the truth of verse 25, the infallibility of the mission, Jesus has hope despite things not looking hopeful. You see, Jesus understands His Father completely, right? And so the Father has planned this mission. Jesus submits Himself to this mission. And so Jesus knows that no matter what happens to Him within His life and death, that the Father's got this. That the plan of the Father is in place. He trusts in the Father. He trusts in God's plan. And because of that, Jesus can have a heart of gladness and a tongue of rejoicing. And He can live in hope despite feeling hopeless. And let's not forget that these words were originally mentioned by David under the Spirit. And I think that they can and should be well applied to us. We've been talking a lot about suffering and the sovereignty of God in our church lately. The subject keeps coming up in passages. And some of you are going through trials right now. And sometimes I wonder if God has been bringing us through these passages, like in James and recently with some of the sermons we've been preaching, these passages. I wonder if God is bringing us to these passages because our church is to endure suffering as a whole, as individuals. But do you have the same kind of outlook on the infallibility of the plan of God and the purpose of God and the decree of God that Jesus had. If you do, is that influencing your heart and your tongue and your flesh? That despite the kind of situation you find yourself in, and it doesn't look hopeful, is because you understand the infallibility of God's plan in your life. Does that cause your heart to be glad? Does that cause your tongue to rejoice? Does that cause you to know that your body is going to dwell securely? David and Christ could have hearts of gladness and tongues of praise and protection because they believed in the infallibility of God. Sometimes I imagine that, you know, if God were to come to me and say, Brandon, you're going to live to your 80 and everything's going to be fine with you. You're never really going to get sick. You're just going to die when you're 80. I think, wow, that would really affect the way I live today. I might go skydiving. I might, you know, go wrestle a bear or something like that. Like, that'd be really fun, right? If I knew I was going to live till 80, right? But how much more sure should I just simply trust in the plan of God? That He's got a definite plan for Brandon. He's got a definite plan for you, for Windsor Christian Fellowship. 
And so we walk triumphantly, knowing that the mission of God is unstoppable. Christ's mission was infallible. Christ's mission was hopeful. But third, Christ's mission was incorruptible. Look at verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. The beginning of this verse is in reference to the separation of Christ from His body. His soul wouldn't be abandoned to Hades. It would soon be reunited with Jesus' glorified body upon His resurrection. But the second part of the verse states that God's Holy One would not see corruption or decay. And this is really that main thrust that Peter is using. This is the verse that Peter is using to show Christ from the Old Testament. I'm sure that many of you have had the experience of of walking into a room and being completely bowled over by the smell of something terrible. And then you look into the corner of that room and there's a dead mouse. That little field mouse or, or something, right, that's just there. It's been there for a week and it's just decaying, right? That little mouse, thankfully, is seeing corruption. And it stinks. And David confesses in this text that God's Holy One would not experience that. His Holy One would not stink. His Holy One would not begin to deteriorate. deteriorate. And so this is the verse that Peter is highlighting with this quotation from Psalm 16. This is the one he's really trying to bring across the punch with. And we understand what it means for a body to see decay. I mean, we have our own processes that help hold the body back for a certain season um, with embalming. Or you think of the Egyptians and they mummify people. But this sort of decay is something that Jesus would not experience. No worm would crawl into Jesus' body. No maggot would emerge from him. No animal would eat him. Time would not perform its ugly work on Jesus' body because the tomb was temporary. The Scriptures declared that he would not see corruption, therefore his body must come up out of the grave. Not being carried around as a dead man, but alive. That he would step out of the tomb. And it's interesting because Peter acknowledges in our text that this could not be true of David. So although David is saying these words in Psalm chapter 16, Peter is clarifying after the fact by saying, this is not David. This is Jesus. Look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So guys, David is dead. His tomb is over here, right? His body has seen corruption. The Apostle Paul uses the same psalm in Acts chapter 13 to prove the same exact point. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul uses the same passage as Peter for the same point. And he emphasizes that Jesus did not see corruption. And when you think of this moment in time, this moment in the church, Acts chapter 2, and this preaching of the Apostle Peter, it's like he grabs them in verse 32 when he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Isn't that incredible? You all know that this happened. 
It's like me standing in front of you, something happens outside, we all saw it. And I say, we all, we all just saw that, right? The same exact situation. You all know that Jesus was raised out of the grave. You all know that the mission was incorruptible because all of you are witnesses to the fact. I mean, talk about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Peter was preaching not to a room of 80 people. He was preaching to thousands of people and saying this like it was absolute fact. Like everybody knew that this had happened. He's not speaking to a few disciples in a room somewhere where this was all just kind of concocted and fabricated in an upper room. No, he was preaching to thousands in the open air. And we know this because thousands of people end up coming to Jesus after this. And so Peter is grabbing them by the lapel and saying, you are all witnesses to the fact that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is empty. The same tomb that the Roman seal had on it that was not to be broken. The same tomb that the Roman guards were standing around. The same tomb that had a 2,000 pound rock covering it. That thing is empty. And all of you are witnesses. The body of the Holy One would not see corruption. And everybody knew it. Christ's mission was infallible. It was hopeful. It was incorruptible. But finally, would you look with me at verse 28? Christ's mission was joyful. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. I can remember one time when I was a young boy and I was reading my Bible. And I wasn't an overall very good boy, but I found myself reading my Bible. And I remember reading Psalm 1611, which is that verse that I just quoted for you, that Peter quotes. And the verse always stuck out with me. And it was interesting to me anyway at the time being... 10 or whatever, and my pastor, a couple weeks later after I had read that verse, he mentioned it within a sermon, and I thought, wow, I really like that verse. But from then on, the verse has just kind of stuck with me throughout the years. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And I just imagine those words, of course, being the words of Christ. He's uttering these words to his father that the path of life and the path of death was made known to Jesus by his father and gladness would come in the midst of the relationship between the father and the son and after Jesus is resurrected he ascends up into heaven where he would never experience the sorrows that he experienced on earth Hebrews tell us that Jesus will never die again but Jesus now is ruling and reigning forever in the presence of his father With total joy. Total gladness. Friend, is this a relationship and experience that you have with Jesus? Do you walk the path of life with His leading, through His Word, by His Spirit illumining this book to you? Do you experience the presence of the Lord even now as one who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God? What we've been doing this morning is really zeroing in on one small part of Peter's sermon. But what was the result of this great sermon? Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friend, have you repented of your sins? Children, have you repented of your sins? Have you repented of your wickedness before our holy God? You may think that the word repent is a little harsh for today's culture in 2018. But the Bible says elsewhere that God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Upon repentance, though, God promises the forgiveness of sins. And he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what comes with that is that deep-seated joy. And that's often as pastor, and I know talking with other pastors, that it's so hard when you don't see joy within the flock. That there's an actual gladness of heart because of the relationship with Christ that you have. He's leading you down the path that of, of, of what He has for you. And you're trusting in the infallibility of His plan and you find hope in it and you're finding joy in it. Despite what the path of your life has been to this point, God is able to set you on His path, a forgiven sinner with the presence of the Holy Spirit of God to guide you and to be within you. And this is a result of what Jesus has done. No resurrection. This doesn't happen. But as we close this morning, I want to read for you one of the prayers from a small book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. I would strongly recommend that you get this book. It's just beautiful the way these prayers are written poetically. But this is called Resurrection. Great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foes lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, in his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who wast lifted up on a cross, art ascended to highest heaven. Thou who as a man of sorrows was crowned with thorns, art now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than mine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. Now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, thy prayers my comfort. Father, I thank you for your word in this Psalm 16 that has shown us even in prophetic form that you would not see corruption. Your body would certainly be bruised. It would be crushed on our behalf, but it would not corrode. We thank you, Father, for raising your son from the dead. 
We thank you, Christ, for your work and your willingness to lay down your life for us, but to take it back up again. And Lord, even now as you are at the right hand of the Father, we pray that you will pray, ask him on our behalf to, to be that mediator that we desperately need. Coming to you in robes of righteousness, none, none of it attained by ourselves. I pray, Lord, that as we finish our worship service, that you will apply these words, these words to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that if there are any here who do not know you, Open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel, the truth of your death and resurrection, the truth of the righteous robes that can be given. Lord, cause us to repent. In Christ's name, amen.